Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Without Genesis, the rest of the Bible is incomprehensible. It's the foundation upon which our faith uh, rests. Um, I realize for many people it can be a difficult book to understand, but we have a man with us today who's going to has done a lot of work in the book of Genesis. He's written a commentary on it, and it's our friend Steve Ray. You know Steve. He leads pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Rome, other sites. He's been, I think, the Holy Land over 200 now, right? <laughs> 200 times. It's, I, just, I just remember when you first were going over there, learning, you know, making connections with people. Wow. It's been, how many people have gone on those pilgrimages? Do you know? I have no idea. Thousands of yeah. people. We've taken thousands of people. Oh. I'd have to calculate how many trips per year, how many people on a bus, how many right. buses, but it's thousands of people. Yeah. yeah. What, a, what a rich gift that's been. Um, you converted to Catholicism in 1994, and uh, you've been involved in uh, Catholic apologetics, uh, again, exposition of Scripture. And um, you've given us now the commentary on Genesis. How, how long were you working on this? Probably from the beginning, 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot in the last two years where we really, uh, really took what I had and dove into it and solidified it. And then Ignatius said I had to remove 100 pages because it was too long. And then my wife and I sat for 30 days, 10 hours a day, going back through the whole thing, excising it down to 460 pages. That's painful. Oh, that's it? like, which it's... one of your kids do you want to kill? I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, let's go. I'll tell you what. Uh, you and I have talked about Genesis over the years. Uh, yep. You know, my friendship has often um, talked about this book. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to try to remember that not everybody, you know, is, is familiar with it. Yep. So let's yep. just start. What's the word Genesis mean? It's a Greek word that means beginning. Okay. And it says in the beginning, and that's how it got its name. It's the book of the beginning. But it's also a book of beginnings, because there's a lot of firsts. Yep. There's a lot of things. That I loved when I did it to figure out where's the first time the word love is used. Yes. Where's the first time? There's a lot of firsts. The first covenant, the first sin that brought about problems. All the firsts come here in this book. That's why I say in, it's the most important book of the Bible. It's the second longest, 50 chapters, but it's 32,000 plus words. Is Jeremiah the longest? Jeremiah is yeah. 33,000 plus a few mm-hmm. words, but... It's the second uh, second longest, and like you said in the introduction, without it, we really are, are left um, floundering because it's in Genesis where we learn about who God is, yeah. what He did, where we came from, yeah. and you know we only have five senses: we smell, see, hear, taste, and touch, and everything we know about the universe around us comes through those five gates. And it's processed by a bunch of gray matter between our ears. And that's not a very adequate source to understand everything there is. There's a lot of things we cannot see. And so Genesis is telling us, God is giving us a revelation because he wants himself, he wants to be known. This is a funny thing. We learn here that he created us in his image. And I'm convinced that the creation process was the Trinity had so much fun together. They love being together, laughing and just having such a blast. And they finally just said, you know what? This is way too much fun to keep to ourselves. Let's 
create beings that are in our image and let's share it. So it was it was the love and the fun that just bubbled over into the gods yeah. creating us. I like to say a theology of play is really what's yeah. behind creation. It really is. He's enjoying the whole yeah. thing. Just imagine yeah. now that he's created it, what he thinks of when he watches a hummingbird, you know? I mean, I just he got he is enjoying his creation yeah. too. And so he he made us and he wanted he wants to be known he wants to be appreciated he wants to have a relationship with us so so he gives us a revelation to tell us why we're here and what his goal is with us and what the end should be and then we went into we disobeyed him we broke the rules and i like what cs lewis says we became bent no longer straight with a bent planet. Yeah. Yeah. And then he now has to come up with a remedy. And this is the first there, too, the first uh, Genesis 3.14. I'll bring enmity between you and the woman. He tells what's he, what he's going to do in the future. And then, um, in a way, he drops behind enemy lines and he starts the the counter-revolution. Yeah. You know, he's going to bring back a new creation, what he wanted it to be, but even better. So the book of Genesis really gives us the beginnings of everything. It's the start of it all. It tells us of a great... A uh, creator artist. That's the way I refer to him in the beginning, the great artist. Mm-hmm. And in the book of Romans one twenty, one of my favorite verses of all time, it says that we know something of his divine power and his eternal nature by that which has been made. That's one Greek word, poema, from which we get the word poem. Yeah. So God is the great poet, the great artist, and he's written. He's written in nature with creation. He's written this revelation he's given to us. And by reading his Books, so to speak, yeah. the book of Scripture and the book of nature that's also his uh, creation, we can learn a lot about him and we can establish, have that relationship established with him. But Genesis is where it all begins. Now, the, that in the beginning is picked up again in the New Testament, oh, the yeah. Gospel of John. Yeah. Tell me why. Well, when John is writing, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's explaining actually to us what was before the beginning. Because that's a question when you say, in the beginning God created. Well, what was before the beginning? Yeah. That's We get to the Gospel of John. That's what he tells us. In the beginning already was yeah. the yeah. Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he became man and dwelt among us. So that is explaining to us. And I think what John does, because I also have a book, a commentary on John's Gospel, about 450 pages too. And I say in there that John... I think is very clever. He he starts his book within the beginning, and what he's really saying is if you want to understand my book, which begins within the beginning, you have to understand the first book that begins that way, because my book is based on the first one like that. And then you get to 1 John, and it's also, we saw him who was from the beginning. We've touched him, we handled him. So the first, and all the word beginning, the word, this Greek, uh, Hebrew, Greek word for beginning is the beginning that was always in St. John in the, in the New Testament. Um, it's the first book of the Bible. Um, it's also the first book of the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, what Jews call the, um, the Torah. Um, does it form a, a, a clear narrative with those other books? Yes, and the word Pentateuch means five scrolls. Originally, there were scrolls that you'd pull off the Genesis scroll and you'd open, roll, roll, roll until you get to where you wanted to read. And they didn't have chapter and verses back then either. So if you wanted to remember where something was, it's funny. In the book of Hebrews, three or four times, the writer of Hebrews says, somewhere it is written. (laughs) They didn't didn't have a way to reference it. But yes, it, it, 
there's a flow to it. Genesis tells us what God did for us. Exodus then begins to tell us what we need to do for God. He, he delivers us, and Leviticus then really tells us what we need to do for God. So Genesis is the creation, and we the creation, the fall, the flood, the Babel, and then we move into the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God makes a covenant with these men. And I have to say, reading the lives of those men, which is the last 40 chapters, is so exquisite. The writing, the weaving in and out of themes, and God drawing straight with crooked lines, and God's winnowing through history and choosing people. The story is just so exquisitely written. It's I, I was sad when the book was done. I mean, I want to yeah. go back and rewrite it because I just enjoyed it so much. But you get... Abraham, now God starts a covenant with a new a new man in a way. He's a, can you almost consider him a new Adam because he's starting over. God's going to start something new with this yeah. one guy. Yeah. And then it flows into they get into the land of Egypt. There's a whole reason for that it's told in Genesis 15. And then they got to get out of there because God keeps his promises. And so Exodus is them bringing it out. Leviticus is setting how we're going to live now. What are we going to do for God? Numbers is going through the wilderness for 40 years because they disobeyed. And then Deuteronomy is where Moses really institutes the law, goes over it again with them, and then Moses dies and they go into the promised land. So that's the whole story of the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. Yeah. The very hangs in. People like Genesis is pretty fun to read, and Exodus too is this great adventure. Once you get slogged down in Leviticus of all these sacrifices and all yeah. people, that's where they say, well, you know what, so what for my New Year's resolutions? <laughs> they get to Leviticus, they quit. But Genesis is a great and exciting story to read. Let's uh, let's pick up the question of science. Okay. Oftentimes, when people talk about Genesis, they say, "How can you believe uh, that Genesis is divinely revealed when we know so much uh, from the world of science about our origins?" And um, you, you and I both, in our experience as evangelical Protestants, probably spent uh, far more time than we should have trying to harmonize Genesis. And modern science. Right. The problem is modern science keeps changing under you. Right. <laughs> so. Yep. And uh, people then say that because um, modern science is there, we don't need scripture anymore because now we know we've got science and it's right. all through evolutionary processes. This isn't a big bang. And so the whole story of Genesis is chucked out. Yeah. But uh, the way that I see it and that the Catholic Church, I think, sees it as well is that the Bible is not trying to tell us how it happened so much as why it happened. Mm -hmm. And it's written for a generation which is a pre-scientific generation. Yeah. If God were to give, back in the days of Genesis when, he's, when the book is being written, if God would have given the scientific formula that he used to create the universe, yeah. you know, like on the blackboard you see in movies yeah. with all this X's well, and the... In this movie Oppenheimer, there are many scenes <laughs> in which you've got a full blackboard right. full of these right. esoteric symbols. Exactly. And, yeah. and I say that even if God had given us the science scientific explanation. Nobody would understand it even today. It would be way too complex. But he, science gives us sometimes the how. They struggle with it, and they can't go back to, to the beginning and reproduce it. Science needs to reproduce. It right. needs to have um, reproduce something so they can see how it works consistently. Right. We can't go back and reproduce that. But religion 
the Bible tells us why it was. It tells us who and why and gives us that importance. So I said to discover the truths revealed in Genesis, we must remember to ask the right questions, theological questions, not necessarily scientific questions. Yeah. And these questions, actually, people don't realize that the the church fathers also had to deal with this question of cosmology yep. and how the world is constructed. And they had to deal with pre-modern uh, scientific descriptions. Um, what uh, I know Augustine uh, oh, I, com- I, did a commentary on Genesis. Yeah, and I, I quote him in here at some length because I used his commentary a lot. By the way, I use a lot of the fathers of the church – church documents, but I really loved using Jewish rabbis, ancient yeah. rabbis, even some Jewish writings before the New Testament, commenting on the book of Genesis. That was fun. But I like Augustine's because when he was struggling with the six days also, um, he said he likes the idea that God just, boom, created it all at once yeah. and then explained it in the six days. So yeah. it, it makes it explainable for uh, non-scientific mm-hmm. people. But he just... He didn't need six days. He just, boom, he created it, yeah. and there it was. <laughs> they become six days of revelation. Then, I yeah, guess. That's, yeah, that's a good way to put it, six yeah. days of revelation. And then he rested. Did God get tired? No. The word rest there in Hebrew means that he ceased from his labors. He stopped creating. He created, and then that was it was very, very good, and he stood back and admired it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about um, the evolution um, People want to know where did man come from? Who the human is the product of what? We the the common scientific view today is evolution. That we all basically the materialistic view, the non God view, is that there was a big bang and over billions of years the complexity kept growing more and more mm-hmm. and finally some cells crawled out of the ocean and yeah. we eventually became man which really gives an ans- no answers to anything yeah. and um, but since there are evidences of evolution we have to deal with that as Christians well, hold it there. we'll come back and because you know, John Paul II spoke on this as, as did Benedict sixteenth. my guest Steve Ray our topic the book of Genesis We're going to spend the remainder of the day going through it, and we'll get to the great Patriot stories. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Steve Ray. We're going into the book of Genesis. We're dealing with some introductory questions in the first segment, and um, we're talking about science, six literal 24-hour days, uh, Big Bang, evolutionary hypothesis. How does John Paul II deal with this? Well, the, the church, John Paul and Benedict, and I think the whole modern church has, has agreed that it's not going to say whether it's six literal days or evolution. It leaves that open mm-hmm. to continued scientific endeavors. Yeah. But that what we have to believe is that everything came from nothing. There was a big bang. At one point, there was nothing. And then there was something because God said to do and he made so it. So that's one of the non-negotiables. Non-negotiables, right. is, it's called ex nihilo in Latin, yep. means from yep. nothing. So the non-negotiables, it, etern- matter is not eternal. Right. Matter and energy is not eternal, and it just kind of morphed into it, and it'll morph out and do something else in another billion years. No, there was God and nothing, and then God created out of nothing, and now there's something called the universe and beings. Second thing is that life 
is something new that God did with his own from from non-living things to living things. Okay. It was an act of God. And then in particular, that at one moment in time, the creation of the human soul, whether it was on day six, like in the sixth day, or whether it was through an evolutionary process and God says, okay, now the creature we're going to. And yeah. The soul is not does not evolve with the body. Right. Right. That, that didn't come from the body. The yeah. soul is an infusion, a gift, a separate thing that God act, puts in into this creature, and yeah. he's now becomes a living being. Yeah. So those are the non-negotiables. Catholics have, have to believe those, at least those three things. Yeah. You know, I think you know some people are uh, put off by the idea of pre-human uh, ancestors uh, for our bodies, but you have to remember the. Bible itself says we made from the clay of the earth. Yeah, right. That's pretty. <laughs> that's a little lower. Than that's even pretty lower the, than the primates. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's very. That's a very good point. So, um, let's let's go to um, let's go to the main story because the first eleven chapters kind of give you the setting. Yep, it sets the stage, yep. but the real action takes place with the call right. of Abraham. Is that would you agree? Yeah, no, it's that's absolutely true. And Abraham is the pinnacle of the story and his offering of Isaac is the pinnacle of the pinnacle of the book of Genesis. That was my favorite chapter to write of the of Abraham being told to take his son and offer him. So the first eleven chapters are what we call Genesis can be divided into two sections. Mm-hmm. First 11 chapters, which are kind of prehistory. We, do, right. we don't know the dates for the flood. Right. We don't know the dates of these things. Then you get to Abraham, and from chapter 11 through the end, chapter 50, now you have history that we can date and, and find archaeology for and whatever. So. Usually thinking, what, about 2000 B.C. Yes. for, for Abraham? Rough. I mean, it's rough. But. And some people go 2000 to 1800, sure. but, but roughly, I just say, 4,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, Abraham comes on the scene. So the first 11 chapters, you can remember four things. Very simple. Creation, fall, flood, and Babel. Yeah. The Tower of Babel. So those are the first 11. And if you just remember those four things, you got the whole first 11 chapters kind of under your belt. (laughs) Now, the... The last half is also four things, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay. So if you get four and four, you've got the whole story easy. Very easy nice. puts uh, Genesis in a nutshell for you. Yeah. Yeah. And so Abraham, after um, Noah, you know, sin again crept in everywhere again, and it's because it's now in our nature. And... Noah fails, he gets drunk, and you know, it's all yep. kinds of problems, and then... God, I think God looks for a man who he can start over again with. So, but not he wants somebody that's inwardly, not just somebody famous or somebody rich and powerful. He wants somebody that has the right kind of heart. Mm-hmm. And he tests this guy mercilessly, I think, it, yeah. when you read the story, to see if he had the metal to actually do it. And yeah. in the final test... I think one of the tests was when he said, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant, and he's got 318 men who work for him, but he doesn't have a son yet. But 318 men who work for him handling his flocks and herds, a very rich man. Then God says, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant. I'm making it with you now. And he says, oh, good, I'm finally going to get something out of this deal. What's the sign of the covenant? God hands him a flint knife and says, circumcise yourself. He's 100 years old. And and it says, you and the men with you. So can you imagine the next morning, Moses, I, Abraham calls all of us 318 guys says, guys, I got some good news and bad news. What do you want first? 
I mean, it's it is it's earthy. I mean, very it, earthy. It is, oh my goodness! It is, uh, and I, we we we're we're much more sanitized in our late. Dating, oh yes, you know. Um, so it's, I always have to think back. I mean, this has to do, of course, with the animal sacrifice and everything. It's like, oh yeah, the, these they are dealing with the the soil, the blood, the flesh. Uh, those are important elements to these stories. You you would not have been able to stand being around Sarah and Abraham and his men. They would have stunk. Yeah. Let's face it. They had male goats. I don't know if you've ever been around a male goat, but they smell bad and you can't get it off you for days. Oops. It's it's the scent that they have. Yeah. Living out there with no showers, no running water, really baths or anything. And you are dealing with all of these animals, and you're sleeping in a tent, and it's 100 degrees half the time. These these were rough guys, and there's yeah. no reason to believe they had all their teeth. When you see movies of Abraham, you know, they all have pearly whites. <laughs> you know, you go out in the desert today in the with the Bedouins, and half of their teeth are gone, and the rest of them are brown. Right. So there's no reason to believe that these people had all their teeth and that they were looked and smelled like us. But Abraham, God finds this man who has a heart and he's 1600 miles away from what we call israel today he he was that took him 1600 miles to leave and come to where god told him to go so it it didn't all start in jerusalem it starts way over in iraq yeah and janet and i went there of course when we filmed our movie on abraham and isaac and jacob and one of the nice things about writing this book is i've been to these places and i got a sense of what it was like there so I, i weave that into the story a lot and Abraham is living over there, and it's an opulent city. They have a huge ziggurat, which is like a pyramid. And Abraham was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan. And the book of Joshua says, your fathers, Abraham, Terah, and your fathers and earth, they served other gods. And by the way, Abraham served the god was Nana, the god of the moon, and they had human sacrifice in Ur. When the king died, they found death pits where the king was and the queen were in the center and all of their retinue of people were around them, up to 80 of them that died with the king to be buried with him for the for the afterworld travels. So Abraham's not unfamiliar with human sacrifice. This is part of their culture. And when God says to Abraham, take your son, I think what he might be doing, he knew Abraham wasn't going to kill his son. He knew he wouldn't let him do it. And Abraham knew it too. We can get into that if we have time. And I go into great detail in the book. I think what God was saying is, are you really, this is my final test. You say you've left Nana, the God of the moon. Yes, you traveled all the way here. Yes, you circumcised yourself. Yes, you've done everything I've told you to do. You waited 25 years for a son. But are you really willing to do for me what you would have done for Nana? Oh, yeah. Are you really willing to do for me? Yeah, with a, a sacrifice, even your son. Are you willing to do that? Because that was part of the because game this, earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I think that part that that could be an explanation of what God is doing. See, and that's the nice thing about knowing the culture and the context. Yeah. If you don't know what's going on in Ur, yeah. Of yeah. a sacrifice, so on. You don't know that that's an element that Abraham is very familiar with human sacrifice. And we say, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, we sacrifice humans today, don't we, through abortion and sure. infanticide. I mean, sure. We're no more godly or more civilized than they were back yeah. then in many ways. Yeah. So, I think it's also, it's also interesting. People always think that somehow people in the ancient world were more philosophically gullible. But in fact, these are people who very much depended upon 
what they understood as the laws yeah. of um, heredity. They, they would have used that word, but they knew how to raise uh, livestock. Oh, they were brilliant you know? people. Yeah, yep. and they they knew that um, they knew that um, males and females produce after their kind, right. reproduce after their kind. They're not given to. Um, they're not. They're not gullible. They don't know some of the things that we know about the cosmos. And there's a lot of things we don't know that they knew. Right. And so I always think it's it's odd when we come somehow think that they're more susceptible to fantasies about you know God and heaven when in fact they're living in a a much more uh, severe. Existence, yep. and they, and they're tempered by the deserts. Yeah, the deserts temper them. They learn to live in the harshest of, of situations. I think I love C.S. Lewis. He has a phrase called um, chronological snobbery. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very helpful. <laughs> I quote him in here about that chronological yeah. snobbery. But so God finds this man, and he tells him to pack up everything and go. Now, I, there's a poem I've. I put in here too, and it's. I'm just going to paraphrase it. That God and this and Abram have having this dialogue, and God says, "I want you to go to this land." Abram says, "Where you want me to go?" He said, "Just go. I'll tell you where to stop." Then Abram says, "You haven't spoken to anyone for over 400 years, and now you come booming out of the sky, telling me what to do to go to some mumbled nowhere. I have to leave the ants my." The bones of my ancestors leave my lands and my fields, leave all my friends and everything. You come, and I'm 75 years old. I'm all arthritic bones. You come very lately, Lord. You come very late. But my camels will leave in the morning. <laughs> that gives me goosebumps That's every great. time I say it. Yeah. All the complaints and arguments, yeah. but he says, but my camels will leave in the morning. <laughs> He's wow. transparent before God. Oh, and he's yeah. that's why he is called the father of faith and not me. Yeah. He's yeah. called that because every time when you read through scripture when God calls somebody their answer when they have the heart and demeanor of Abraham the answer is always here I am Lord. Yeah. yeah. I think it's 24 times in the Bible that's you find that response here I am Lord. And that's what he said. And you come to his grandson, Jacob, who's totally the opposite. Right. You know, it's just, this is the interplay of The personalities of are, dis- you, you, oh. you see how distinct the personalities are. Yes. Sometimes the names give a little bit of it away. Yes, and how God deals with Abraham, who is so malleable, and he says, here I am, Lord. Oh, yes, even your son. And by the way, God didn't command Abraham to offer his son. There, the, the, it's a softer word in Hebrew. There's a softening to it where it almost comes as a request. Mm-hmm. And I give the evidence mm-hmm. for that in my book. Very good. And so it's God's, in a way, God says, I would, I, I would like you to do this for me. Mm-hmm. And Abraham says by his actions, not only will I do what you command of me, but I will do what you wish of me. And he could have said no without disobeying God. And so you've got him doing that, but now you've got Jacob, who's always a negotiator. Yeah. If you bring me back to the land, and if you do this, and if you do this, then you will be my God. Hope <laughs> <laughs> Terry will come back and continues. Steve Ray, my guest, the book of Genesis, our topic, we're talking about the great patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, of course, you have to slip Joseph in there. Oh, yeah. He's a central character. All right. We'll be right back. And good afternoon. I'm Al Crestor. With me, Steve Ray, talking about Genesis 
talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their story. This is a coherent story. Oh, this yeah. has the, this. In some ways, it's novelistic. No. It, yes, it, it's yeah. like a novel. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and I think that people have said this book that I've written is written like a novel. Yeah, because I we walk with these guys through their life, and I'm bringing out what it was like where they lived, and what what it was like to raise goats and sheep, and get get you a feel, kind of in get into the context with them a little bit. But it's fascinating because God deals one way with Abraham, and then He deals another way with Isaac, and Jacob's a different character, so God deals with him, him in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And so when you watch how and I I know it's a trite statement but God draws straight with crooked lines. Yeah. All the flaws of these men and yet God turns it into good and he he starts his projection. He's going to bring his son into the world. They don't know it's going to be his son. Right. They just know something's going to happen because the promise in Genesis. And so God is now winnowing through yeah. history. Esau falls off, and Jacob is chosen. Mm-hmm. The others, the 12 tribes, you know, the, all of them. Joseph is, becomes the firstborn, but it's still Judah who God chooses to bring through the line. Mm-hmm. And so you see God winnowing out and f- family trees falling off to the side as he makes his line all the way to bringing his son into the world. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch these first four guys, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, yeah. because he, Joseph does become the firstborn of the 12 tribes. Yeah. Yeah. And so he is eminently important. And we always, always hear well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We leave Joseph yeah. off. Yeah, and he, he becomes preeminent. Preeminent. Uh, and, and so in that sense, he becomes a type of Christ. He is. Oh, he is a type yeah. of Christ. You see no malice in him whatsoever in Joseph at the end. He is no malice. There's no guile. Like his father Jacob was his name means guile, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. supplanter, crook. That's why when God says, I'm the Abraham, I'm the father, I'm Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the crook. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, tell the story of um, the, the 12 sons. Of Jacob, yeah, the twelve sons of Jacob are interesting, and they're a, really a motley group, and many rogues among them. All of them, actually, and uh, they were all born outside of the Promised Land in Haran, which is in Turkey of today. And they were all there. Jacob, being the conniver, goes up there to work for his uncle Laban, who's every bit the conniver he himself, is himself. Yeah, and that's right. he uh, to the point where he even tricks him. Jacob works seven years to get the beautiful daughter, Rachel, and uh, Laban has two. He's got the one that said she had plain eyes. <laughs> she had plain <laughs> eyes. That's how she's described. And Rachel is lovely of form, beautiful and lovely of form. Jacob falls head over heels with Rachel and agrees to work for seven years to marry her. And it's only one verse. It says he agreed to work for seven years, and it went by like a day. And then he married her. But Laban, the trickster also, he out-tricked the trickster. Yeah. And Jacob wakes up in the morning and finds out he's been sleeping with Leah, the one with the plain eyes. Unbelievable. <laughs> what? <laughs> he, he he goes for the sex appeal. Yeah. And he... He gets the plain eyes. <laughs> yeah, he gets her, so he's very plain. And they, in here I said, you know, the word wedding feast in 
Aramaic means drinking party. That's the same word for a drinking party. So he's obviously had a little bit too much to drink that day on his wedding day, and and the woman was always covered, veiled, you know, for her husband until the. So it seems un. Unbelievable that he would make that mistake, but he did. And then he had to work another seven years yeah. to get Rachel. So those boys were those seven, um, those twelve sons were born there. Not to all of them, though. Benjamin was born later. Joseph was the last one born there, and then Jacob leaves and goes with the with the sons. But they're they're a motley crew, except for Joseph. Joseph is very moral. He is an outstanding character all through the last. Ten chapters of Genesis, you see nothing but nobility and yeah. courage and honesty and integrity. When Which he, is interesting by contrast yes. to what's gone before. And because his father was every bit devious, right. and his right. brothers, even to the point they hated him so much that they were willing to tell their father he died, and they sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery instead. Joseph, being the great noble one, when they finally come there to get the grain. This is a story that people should know these stories and the intricacies of them. Joseph then sees his brothers and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him because they, the Egyptians shaved their head and they don't have beards. Yeah. And so he, and they, they, it's been many years. They don't never dream that Joseph is still alive. He's a slave. Never dream that he would be the, the second in command of the biggest world superpower at the time, Egypt. And he, he punishes them, but not vindictively. He he works with them, and he puts them through grueling tests and trials because he's sanctifying them. He's mm-hmm. doing it out of love to purify them. And then in the end, it says he just breaks down and cries and says, I'm your brother Joseph. <laughs> There's just no phrase in any literature that has the power. Once you really go through the story where he said, I am your brother Joseph. Yeah, yeah. And they just about want to die because now they think he's going to be vindictive. Right. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah. What, yeah. A, what a beautiful story. So you've got these characters. And, and the pinnacle of the whole book is the offering of Isaac. That's really the pinnacle of the whole story. And, and that's from the, from the beginning of the church, that's been seen as a type oh, yeah. of uh, Christ's crucifixion and uh, and the Jews viewed it also as as a picture of of a great sacrifice it, they that's why I love to bring the Jewish element into yeah. it and they don't yeah. call it the sacrifice of Isaac because he wasn't sacrificed they call it the akidah the offering of yeah. Isaac yeah I've noticed that and um, yes it is because you Abraham well, even just how it begins. Let's par- compare two verses. We already talked about Genesis and the Gospel of John. Okay, Abraham, yes, here I am. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son right. as a sacrifice. Yeah. They're, they, they're, bounce, they're, they're bouncing off each other. Why? Because there is a father of an only begotten son who has to offer him in Genesis to give us a picture of 2,000 years later, another father with an only begotten son who's going to offer him. And where? At the same place. Take your son to Mount Moriah, three days walk. Well, Lord, why can't I just do it here? Yeah. Why do I have to take him three days? Do you know how agonizing that three days is going to be? And twice they use the word, and the two of them went on together. <laughs> and it just brings tears to your eyes when, yeah. you, when you're in the story. And you can see God the Father walking on with his son together. 
And what do you that think point. Isaac is thinking? He's probably 15 years old. The Jews think older, but he's at least 15 years old. He's a strong, strapping young man who has the ability to carry the wood of the sacrifice up the mountains. That's not light. That's a heavy load. I built an altar once in Hebron, and we offered a ram. It looks like we did in the movie, but I didn't really offer him. But to try to get all that rocks, and and Abraham's 115-plus years old. Abraham had, I mean, Isaac had to be a willing victim. The Jews teach that, too, mm. that he was a willing victim, because there's no way Abraham could have gotten him up on the altar if, Abra- if Isaac had said no. Yeah. And he, like Jesus, he became a willing victim. He did not resist his father. Yeah. It's like a- Isaac says to his dad, you know, you, I- I'm a miracle gift of God. I-, I have no claim on myself. God gave me to you yeah. as a gift, and I recognize who I am. And... So he has to go to Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? A thousand years later, Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. And that's the top of Jerusalem. So 2,000 years later, God the Father brings his only son to the same place to offer him as a sacrifice. Isaac went up with the wood of the sacrifice on his back. Jesus went up with the wood of the sacrifice, the cross on his back. When they finally get there, Abraham, the angel says, stop! And he pulls his knife back, and he finds a ram with his head stuck in a thorn bush to be the sacrifice. When Jesus went up there, what was his head stuck in? A thorn bush, a crown of thorns. I think Abraham knew he wasn't going to have to offer Isaac because he says to the two servants with him, he says, the lad and I will go up and worship, and we will return to you. Mm. That's interesting. And and Isaac says, where is the the lamb. We have the fire. We have the wood, everything, but we don't have the the lamb. The Lord will provide the lamb, my son. Mm-hmm. He knew that the Lord was going to do something. He, the Lord's not going to go back on his promise. Right. I, I, Abram trusts. There's no way God is going to make him live out in that desert for 25 years before he gives him a son. And then let this, just imagine the boy, they went on together. It's just, they're just bonded, this boy and the son. It's like God the father and his son. This intimate relationship between a father and his only begotten son, they must have been constant companions in everything they did. There's no way God is going to go back on his promise and make him kill this boy. Right. And it says in Hebrews that Abraham believed God so much that he knew that even if he did have to, God would have raised him from the dead. Yeah. (laughs) This is why it's the pinnacle story of the whole thing. And. uh, and I spend more time on that in this chapter than anything else, dealing with the whole issue of telling your son to kill, t- telling your father to kill his son, and the fact that it was even a request. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point because it's often it's often the story of the sacrifice of Isaac or the offering of Isaac is often used as a moral uh, objection. Yep. You know, to the character of God, or you know, what kind of God is this? Right. And that's because these people are out of the context. They're not right. reading the context of the story. Right. The, the parallel there is really quite stunning that God the Father offers his son and so on. But then if you, when you read it, and I go into detail on this too, the story continues. And by the way, that's the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's the love of a father for his son. Huh. Second time the word love is used. Now, I'll tell, get to that in a minute. So, Abraham takes his son back. It's like a resurrection. 
Okay, he takes him back home. He decides his son needs a bride now. So he sends his unnamed servant. We don't know his name. He takes 10 camels of gifts back to his own people to find a bride. Rebecca agrees to go. He brings her to Isaac. They fall in love. They see each other in the field. It's very romantic. It's a very romantic story. They fall in love in the field. And it says he takes her into his tent and weds her and he loves her. Second time the word love is used oh. in the Bible is the love of a, son, of a, of a man for his bride. And so you have a picture here. God the Father, his son was sacrificed on Mount Moriah. He took him up back home to heaven. Then he says, my son needs a bride. So he sends his unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit. Doesn't have a name. He's holy and he's a spirit. He sends him back with 10 camels with spiritual gifts to give to whomever he wills. The bride, the church, said to his own people back in Jerusalem. The bride says, yes, I'll go. The servant brings the bride back. Jesus falls in love with the bride. The church takes her into his tent and weds her, and he loves her. So the first time the word love is of a father for his only begotten son. Second time love is used as a husband for his bride, Jesus, for his church. The word love was preserved by the Holy Spirit for those two places for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) The parallels are stunning. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. That book of Genesis is rich with them. And the Trinity is there. Over and over again, we see the Trinity being alluded to. Given, given how rich these narratives are, why do you think they're, so, they're ignored? People are too busy. They think they're not relevant. They, they get the idea. They see that big dusty book sitting yeah. on the coffee table. That's uh, Well, I know I tried to read it back in 1985, and I didn't get very far, so... Um, We'll leave it up to the priest to read that book, you know. I got other things. Or TV's on all the time. Yeah. People need to get to know the Bible, and this is a great way to get started. Yeah. I agree. Genesis, Steve Ray, uh, Bible study guide and commentary published by Ignatius. It's available, of course, in the online bookstore. Steve, thanks. Thank you, Al. It's always always delightful to come in here and sit with you for an hour. Oh, thanks. I'm Al Cresta. Be right back. 